0: Awesome! It's great to be with you guys. I have kind of watched Alaska Bible College uh, from afar, and uh, and really admired what God is doing here. And uh, there was a time many years ago, when I actually even tried to move up here and come to work here. It wasn't in the Lord's will and Lord's time, but uh, it really is kind of a thrill for me to get to be on campus and meet some of you guys. And thanks for letting me uh, letting me come. Um, But I I serve as the president of Not By Works Ministries, and we've been around since 1999. And uh, I mention that because a lot of what I'm going to be talking about today draws from my experience and connections and the network and circles that I've had the privilege of kind of running in for the last, uh, well, uh, 22 years or so. Uh, We've been in ministry 32 years. My wife and I uh, have been married almost 30 years, and we have six kids, and uh, all of them boys. Uh, except the four that are girls. Uh, and, uh, so four girls and two boys. We also have a beautiful granddaughter uh, named Zoe, who's two years old. And uh, right now, uh, our second oldest daughter, Brooke, which is Zoe's mom, and Zoe live with us. And our two youngest kids are my two of my daughters. Uh, they live with us. So I am outnumbered. I'm in a house full of women. My, my sons are 22 and 20, and they're at uh, Southwest Baptist University in Bolivar, Missouri. One's a senior, one's a uh, sophomore. And uh, and then we have an older daughter that lives in Minnesota. So um, my wife is actually with me on this trip. We've really enjoyed our time at Pioneer Baptist. And uh, if you're interested, uh, the first two sessions of the six sessions we had there were related to the gospel. We talked about what the gospel is not. And those uh, videos uh, or the podcast, either one, are posted uh, at notbyworks.org. And then uh, this weekend, we just finished up four more sessions On spirit of the Antichrist and we talked about some pretty edgy stuff that's going on in this world and how that uh, relates to Satan's uh, Luciferian conspiracy to try to take over the world so uh, but this morning I want to talk about uh, this issue of free grace and what kind of led me this is actually the first time I've ever given this message live I prepared a video about nine months ago um, that that is the material that I'm presenting here but it's one of the few videos that we uploaded at our site that was just prepared uh, in studio, not in a, in a message like this. So this is really my first time to to do this uh, in a group, and I'm looking forward to some questions here at the end. I love to dialogue, and hopefully we can uh, kind of learn together as we uh, have some questions. But when I first put this together, um, I felt like there was a need for some clarity related to the so-called Free Grace Movement. How many of you have heard of the Free Grace Movement or that type of thing? Yeah. So um, uh, you know, we live in an age of labels, you know, people like to throw labels around and, and often we use labels and really don't have any idea what they mean. And, and I've really tried, um, in my ministry to be fair to those with whom I may disagree and to really make sure I understand what it is they're saying, uh, try to avoid, uh, pejorative attacks, personal attacks. Um, <clears throat> you know, I've spoken for years, uh, uh in, in, uh, uh, criticism of Calvinism, for example, but I I know that many of my colleagues that hold to a Calvinistic view, they love the Lord, they love his word, they're good people, we just have an honest disagreement, and I think it's an important issue, uh, but uh, I don't want to ever, you know, uh, create straw men. And so I felt like in all of my travels, uh, you know, we've been doing this, as I said, for 22 years, we've been in over a thousand churches and conferences in all 50 states multiple times, And I found that I was constantly having to defend myself against these false notions of the so-called free grace movement. When I would mention what institution I was associated with or in our journey, we've spent time in academics. We've spent time in other uh, nonprofit organizations on the side. And whenever I would mention some of those things, then people would say, oh, so you believe this. Or oh, you believe this, and I'd have to say no. That's it's not what I believe. And I, so finally, I I did a, a video about uh, uh, nine years ago uh, that kind of uh, created a bit of a reaction. And the video was called "Why I'm No Longer Free Grace." And I did that at a conference, and the title was really just one of those. T- teaser titles to get people to watch the video. I haven't changed my view at all. And I opened up that message with a illustration about Ronald Reagan, the former president, who, uh, when he was asked by a reporter one time why he left the Democratic Party. Many of you may know he used to be a Democrat. And he famously said, I didn't leave the Democratic Party. The Democratic Party left me. Mm-hmm. And so that was kind of the premise that I used for that video nine years ago. And I basically said, I haven't changed my view, but here's some aberrant sort of spinoffs that have become associated with the free grace movement that uh, I don't agree with. And so, um, I, you know, I, that's, so I started using uh, just the phrase, you know, um, grace gospel, or I'm a grace guy, or I'm a dispensational grace guy. And, and interestingly, what I found is in the nine years since, the Lord has opened up more doors, and I feel like I've been able to be more effective in, in just uh, presenting the pure gospel to people and, and having good, healthy dialogues about it. Uh, but nevertheless, free grace is kind of uh, uh, the, the term, and so what I want to do uh, this morning is I want to walk through a pretty systematic approach and touch on, first of all, the biblical meaning of free grace. Where does the term come from, and what does the Bible say about it? But then I am going to get into some of the... Um, movement, the issues related to the movement and what people have come to associate with free grace, uh, rightly or uh, wrongly. But uh, in this age of labels, you know, we we need to be careful about throwing labels around without knowing what they really mean. I love this quote by the old uh, 18th century British theologian, William Paley, who said, there is a principle which cannot fail to keep a man in everlasting ignorance. And this principle is contempt prior to examination. Uh, Einstein said something similar, I don't have it on the screen, but he said condemnation without examination is the height of ignorance. And so I don't know where everyone's coming from in this uh, group. Uh, I would suspect uh, that some many of you, especially the students, are still sort of studying the Word, feeling your way through, kind of navigating these theological waters, and, and you should do that. But if you're here today and you have kind of fallen prey to this negative perception of free grace, I want to ask you to kind of set that aside and be fair and let's, let's uh, make sure we understand what free grace is before uh, drawing conclusions. Now at the end of it all, after you've kind of heard what, uh, what free grace is all about, if you, uh, if you choose to uh, still disagree with me and Jesus, uh, that's okay. We'll, we'll let you do that. You have that right. Um, but uh, but hopefully uh, you'll see there are some some merits in it. So anyway, uh, nine years later, I thought it would be good to kind of give a uh, you know a re uh, a new treatment of this issue. Lots changed. There are all these new groups popping up. Groups are ebbing and flowing and changing. And so I thought we would uh, you know we would take uh, some time to kind of basically say what where, what is the state of free grace today. Uh, so one last sort of opening uh, remark before I. Dive into the substance here is I do feel like by God's grace the Lord has allowed me to be uh, involved in the so called free grace movement uh, almost from the beginning. So, my how I got passionate about the gospel was uh, when I finished college at age 22 and had already surrendered to the ministry and knew I was going to go on to seminary. Um, At the time, my family was a part of a Southern Baptist church down in Texas, and so. Uh, it was cheapest for me to go to a Southern Baptist seminary, even though most of my life I was raised in a Christian family. Most of my life I really wanted to go to Dallas Seminary. My grandfather had gone there. A lot of the churches that my dad had my family in as we were growing up uh, were Dallas Seminary type churches, and it's kind of my dream. But time came to go, and it was a money factor, so I enrolled at New Orleans Baptist Seminary and had a dorm room picked out and was planning to. To head off that way, it was uh, late July of the summer after my, after I graduated from college and before I was to go off to seminary, and somebody from Dallas Seminary caught wind that I had always wanted to go there, and uh, they sent someone uh, to my parents' house where I was staying at the time to talk to us and said, basically, I heard you wanted to go to Dallas, but you're not, and I explained, well, it's a money issue. And so we ended up talking, and this was a uh, someone from the admissions office at the school, and they, said, they challenged me to step out on faith and said, look, if we can get you a job and get you some grant money and get you just enough funds to go for one semester to Dallas, will you step out on faith and go? So I, how could I say no to that? I mean, I wanted to go. So I got a job loading trucks in a warehouse up in Dallas, um, got a little bit of grant money, uh, did some pay-as-you-go for that first semester so that I didn't have any interest uh, student loans or anything. Um, but, uh, after that conversation, uh, I was now, it was roughly three or four weeks before I was supposed to start school. And I told, uh, one of the staff members at the Baptist church where my parents went, who I didn't know all that well. It was a large, typical, large, you know, Southern Baptist Bible belt type church, but I was excited and he had known I was going to New Orleans seminary. And so when that changed, I said, Hey, guess what? I'm going to Dallas seminary. Well, this guy who I talked to on the phone, I'll never forget his name was Mark uh and he's not this mark but a different mark and uh i like this other mark better but anyway um <laughs> he uh uh he said dallas seminary why do you want to go there well i had i was naive young 22 years old never knew of anybody criticizing dallas seminary didn't know about any of the issues and and i said well yeah why wouldn't i he said oh you don't want to go there they preach that cheap grace stuff mm-hmm. I didn't know any idea what that was. What are you talking about? And she said, let me recommend a book. So he gave me a copy of John MacArthur's The Gospel According to Jesus, which had just come out. This was 1990. And uh, it came out in 1989. And believe it or not, even though I was raised in a Christian family, always attended good, solid, conservative, either Bible or Baptist churches, at age 22, I had never heard of John MacArthur. Never heard of him. So I really had no... Uh, bias one way or the other other than admittedly there was probably a slight bias against the book for no other reason than this guy that criticized Dallas Seminary recommended (laughs) it right so but anyway I went and got the book actually he gave me a copy and I moved up to Dallas three weeks before class started moved into the dorm and uh, there were very few other students there yet because they hadn't come in yet and so I would work all day long, eight to ten hours a day at this warehouse loading 18-wheelers with stuff uh, with a bunch of other people. And then I would come home exhausted at the end of the day, and I would read this book. and nothing else to do. There nobody else on campus. The student center wasn't open yet. And so I very quickly read through it, and I noticed as I was reading that MacArthur made reference frequently in the footnotes throughout the book to a guy named Zane Hodges, who, even though I had a connection to Dallas Seminary because of my grandfather, I also had never heard of. Right, knew all about walverton and Schaefer and Ryrie and Pentecost and those guys, but i never heard of Zane Hodges. Um, so I thought, well, I need to see what this guy has to say because MacArthur sure didn't have much good to say about him. So I went and bought his book absolutely free, and I read it. So by the time the first day of classes started at Dallas Seminary, I was hooked. I was hooked on this issue of the clarity, accuracy, and urgency of the gospel. Never even knew there was an issue but I got hooked. And it became my driving passion. And so all through seminary, I would attend brown bag luncheons and special guest lectures from people talking about the issues related to the gospel. I took electives on the gospel. And then that thus began my journey now, 32 years almost, of a passion for the gospel. So because of that, while I was in seminary, I got connected with one of the leading free grace organizations that had just gotten started, kind of started by Zane Hodges himself. I ended up meeting him and spending a lot of time with him. It was called Grace Evangelical Society. I'm going to come back to that at the end. But uh, I almost went to work there, and I came out, ended up not doing that, came out, pastored for a while, got into academics. But I'd always been connected, again, by God's grace, to the free grace arena, if you will. And then I was uh, instrumental in starting The other leading Free Grace organization called Free Grace Alliance, myself and six other guys, started that as a sort of an alternative to GES when GES kind of went off the reservation a bit. And uh, was also the first executive director full-time of Free Grace Alliance. I've worked uh, as the vice president of academics at the largest Free Grace institution. So when I talk about these things, I don't do so from speculation, but I do so having been connected to them, and I feel like I can be fair and critical of, of of the movement as one who's been uh, a part of it. So let's dive in and start first of all with what does the Bible say? Not a bad place to start, right? Uh, and talk about free grace, uh, the meaning. Uh, this phrase originates directly from the pages of Scripture. Unlike a lot of you know theological movements like Calvinism or Arminianism or Wesleyanism or other other theological labels you can come up with, the phrase free grace is taken straight from Scripture. We get it from Romans 3, 24, being justified freely by His grace through the redemption that is in Christ Jesus. Now, the Greek adverb uh, translated freely there is dorion. It means given as a gift free of charge. It's used nine times in the New Testament, almost always translated freely, depending on your English uh, translation. Uh, one of the other places we see this word, dorion, used is in 2 Corinthians eleven seven. 7. Did I commit sin in humbling myself that you might be exalted? Paul said, because I preached the gospel of God to you free of charge. Same word, dorion, free, free. Or Jesus said, freely you have received, freely give. Same Greek adverb. Jesus here speaking to the 12 disciples. "Doreon" freely. We also see the adverb used in Revelation 21. When we read, it is done. I am the Alpha and Omega, the beginning and the end. I will give of the fountain of the water of life freely to him who thirsts. We see it in, uh, also in Revelation 22. Whoever desires, let him come take the water of life freely. So it's pretty clear what Dorian means. We understand what free is. If I were to offer you a gift... And uh, let's say I'm going to offer this. Let's say this is a gift. It's a Bible, but I mean, you may need a Bible. I don't know. To Ben. <laughs> and I said, I have a gift for you. And I were to offer it. And then I said, well, hold on. Before you take it, here's what you owe me. Here's what you need to get. Here's the, your part of the equation. Suddenly, the entire paradigm changes. It's no longer a gift because a gift, by definition, is free. So, frankly, we don't need the adverb Doryon to qualify a gift, because by its intrinsic nature, a gift is free. If it's not free, it's not a gift, right? If you're being charged for something, it's no longer a gift. It's a quid pro quo of some kind. Uh, and so sometimes people will say, well, free gift or free grace, that's redundant. And, and they're right, but, you know, the Bible often uses redundancy for emphasis, right? And under the inspiration of the Spirit, as Paul wrote uh, this uh, passage here in Romans 3, he chose to qualify grace which is gift, uh, with the adverb freely for emphasis. Um, So the bottom line is our justification, our being made right with God, we're justified freely, he says, is completely free of charge, and it can only occur by God's grace. So when I uh, teach and preach on a variety of subjects, I, and whenever I give the gospel, I always like to emphasize the freeness of it, because after 2,000 years of Satan blinding men's hearts to the gospel, we live in a culture where people don't like that notion of free. In fact, I can usually tell in a in an audience when people, you know, react to me emphasizing the free gift of eternal life, because some will kind of cringe and they'll maybe squirm a little bit. And so when I see that, I just Come on stronger. I mentioned it like (laughs) 10 more times. Free gift, free gift, free gift. Because we have to strip away the erroneous notion that somehow our eternal destiny is contingent upon something we do. And That's why Thursday night at Pioneer Baptist, we talked, you know, spent two hours talking about what the gospel is not. And we have this notion somehow that we've got to bring something to the table, that we've got to do our part, that eternal salvation is a bilateral contract where we say, I'll do this, I'll do that, I'll stop doing this, I'll never do that, I pledge to do this, I promise to do this, and eventually when we put enough on the table, God says, you've got a deal. And then we both sign, and now we're supposedly going to heaven. But the biblical record is that there's nothing we can do to earn our salvation there's nothing in my hand I bring simply to the cross I cling. Jesus paid it all. If we could somehow earn uh, our right standing before a holy God by our actions or intentions, then Jesus didn't have to go to the cross and shed his blood. Mm -hmm. So salvation is not a bilateral contract. It's a unilateral gift. And as with any gift, there's a giver and a receiver. God is the giver. Man is the receiver. Uh, But there's another Greek word that helps us understand the meaning of free grace. And It's uh, found here in Romans 5.15. But the free gift is not like the offense. For if by one man's offense many died, Adam, much more the grace of God and the gift by grace of the one man, Jesus Christ, abounded uh, to many. This is a very important passage for understanding the freeness of eternal salvation and its relationship to God's grace. In this uh, verse, two different words for free are used to describe the nature of God's grace. The first one, which is translated with two words in English, free gift, is the word charisma, and it means, lexically, free gift. And that's because, by definition, any gift has to be free. It's usually translated, it's used 17 times charisma is in the New Testament. It's usually translated either gift or free gift. But again, a gift, by definition, is always free. So he says the free gift is not like the offense. And then if you skip down where he says much more, the grace of God and the gift, even though in English it's the same word gift, it's a different word in Greek. And remember we talked about the adverb doreon. Well, this is uh, the uh, noun dorea, gift, free gift, free gift. So in Romans three twenty four, Paul uses the adverbial form doreon, uh, being justified freely. In English, we often put L-Y on the end of our adverbs. Here, it's the noun form, and it's used 11 times in the New Testament. It's always translated gift, but again, a gift by definition is always free. So the grace of God and the gift of grace. So what Paul is saying here is that by God's grace, the free gift of eternal salvation, of justification, being declared righteous, is available uh, to all. That's what grace is. It's unmerited favor. If it's not free, it's not grace. If it's not grace. It's not free. So it's not, you know, free plus something. It's just free. Nothing in my hand I bring simply to the cross I cling. Paul describes the contrast here pretty well in Romans 4. To him who works, the wages are not counted as grace, but as death. But to him who does not work, but believes on him who justifies the ungodly, his faith is accounted for righteousness. And so as you well know, being students of the Scripture, what we need is to be justified. We need to be declared righteous. Jesus, in his first major sermon right out of the chute, uh, criticizes the self-righteous, pious Pharisees and scribes and Saddu- Sadducees for their uh, you know, self-proclaimed righteousness. Uh, they were bragging about how they dotted their I's and crossed their T's. They said the loud prayers. They read, wore the right clothing. They had this huge phylacteries around their neck. And in that sense, they were lording it over all of the common folk, but they thought they were going to be the first in line for the kingdom. And, of course, Jesus famously said, unless your righteousness exceeds that of the Pharisees, you'll never get into the kingdom. And then he clarifies it even further at the end of Matthew chapter 5 when he says what you really have to be is perfect. It's not just a matter of being better than the Pharisees, as if that were even possible, uh, to more legalistically keep the law than they did. You have to be perfect. Matthew 5, 48. In other words, the righteousness that heaven demands is perfect righteousness, and it cannot be earned because, as James says, even if you keep all the law but stumble in the slightest part, you're guilty of all. And reality is, you know, we're born dead in our trespasses and sins, Ephesians 2, 1. We don't sin. We don't become sinners because we sin. We sin because we're sinners. That's what sinners do. I mentioned we have six kids. I was blessed uh, to be present when every single one of them was born held every one of them seconds after they were born, cut the cord for all six of them, looked down at each one of them and thought, here's a little sinner. You know? <laughs> and, you know, it turns out I was right, you know. Um, and so sinners sin. And so we are sold under sin in desperate need of a heart transplant, in desperate need of the righteousness that only God can give. Mm-hmm. And that righteousness is called imputation in the Bible, comes by faith. When we believe the gospel, In that instant, we pass from death to life, shall never come into judgment, and we are clothed in Christ's righteousness. Now, we don't have time to get into it this morning, but I did talk about this Thursday night that often our position in Christ as born-again believers who by faith have been justified isn't reflected in our actions, right? I mean, that's just part of the ongoing sanctification process and the struggle with sin. Paul describes this very eloquently in Romans 7, the things that I don't want to do, I end up doing, the things I know I shouldn't, you know, I should be doing, I don't do. Oh, wretched man that I am, who will rescue me from this body of death? So there is an ongoing struggle because once we trust Christ, the new nature does not eradicate the old nature. If it did, we'd all be perfect. And I don't know uh, you all very well, but I did see someone when I came in in a Seahawks uniform, so clearly... There's some sin issues in, in, the, in the camp. So, uh, so it's an ongoing process. And by the way, repentance is a biblical concept. What's that? I said, I said that's my little sinner, by the way. That's your little sinner? Okay, well, we'll pray for her. Should we lay hands on her? Please do. I wasn't planning on giving an altar call, but I feel like I might be led to do so. I don't know. Um, but so clearly, all kidding aside, we all struggle with sin, and we will until we leave this earth and we have our glorified bodies. But the goal is we now have the new nature, the indwell, permanent indwelling of the Holy Spirit who convicts us and leads us. The goal is to live like the new man and not the old man. Uh, so the fact that in practice we sometimes sin says nothing about our position in Christ. Our position in Christ is secure and we are impu- Christ's righteousness is imputed uh, to us. Uh, Paul says something similar in Romans 11. If by grace then it's no longer works because otherwise grace would not be grace. (laughs) And if it's by works, it's no longer grace. Otherwise, work is no longer work. In other words, grace and works do not mix. Uh, We don't need good works to prove that we've received the free gift of eternal life. Grace has nothing to do with works. That's what makes it grace. And so when we talk about free grace, often uh, the debate or the difference of opinion and disagreement over this issue comes down to one word, should versus must. If you say all believers must do good works or they're not really saved, I've got a problem. If you say all believers should, that's biblical. In fact, the natural, normal, healthy, expected response of someone who's been born again by faith is to live out that faith and look more like Christ right? That's what the new nature should engender within us. But unfortunately, we've still got that old man rearing his ugly head. And to the extent that we walk in the flesh and not the spirit, to the extent that we walk by sight and not by faith, to the extent that we're not in the word, not fellowshipping with other believers, not attending a good Bible teaching church, we are capable of looking very much like the old man. In fact, there's not a single sin that an unbeliever can commit that a believer might not also commit if he or she walks in the flesh. Now, I don't recommend it. Sin uh, always leads to great unpleasantness. I'm on record as being against sin. Uh, If you hear nothing else I say, make sure you hear sin bad, okay? I'm not recommending sin. Uh, It has terrible consequences. My home church preacher used to say sin will take you further than you want to go, cost you more than you want to pay, and keep you longer than you want to stay. It's ruined lives. And sin is an equal opportunity killer, by the way. Sin doesn't care whether you're a believer or not. If you're a believer and you sin unto death, you're going to go to heaven. If you're an unbeliever and you sin unto death, you're going to go to hell. I mean, sin hates uh, people, and sin will lead to death. Uh, Paul says sin wills to have us in Romans 7. And so sin is never a good idea, but the reality is our eternal destiny is not based upon works. If it were, it wouldn't be about grace, and Jesus wouldn't have to die on the cross. So... When we talk about the meaning of free grace, to put it simply, free grace means God's unmerited favor in providing our eternal salvation absolutely free. At no charge to us whatsoever. Um, That's what we mean in theological circles when we use the term free grace. Sounds redundant, but it's used for emphasis. And, um, you know, Paul uses that word in Romans, both the adverb and the noun, freely and free, to make sure no one misses the point. Grace is free. And the minute you attach one requirement, however subtle, however small, however you word it, to the single condition that's used more than 160 times, I have an appendix in the back of getting the gospel wrong that lists over 160 verses in the New Testament alone, that condition eternal life upon faith. Faith, faith. The minute you add one condition to that, you've obliterated grace. See, it's not ninety-nine percent Jesus and one percent JB. It's one hundred percent Jesus. Jesus really did uh, pay it all. So, with that understanding of the free grace message or meaning, rather, what's the free grace message? In, in, what what has become associated with the free grace? Those who uh, claim to adhere to a free grace. Uh, message. Well, let's talk first of all about uh, the historic understanding of where this comes from, and that is free grace and dispensationalism. Um, Of course, don't forget, we believe in free grace because as I've just demonstrated, that's what the Bible teaches, and that should always be the ultimate standard for our beliefs, attitudes, and practices. But it's worth noting that those who claim to be dispensational yet reject free grace theology are contradicting the plain teaching of Scripture, and they're also contradicting the historic moorings of dispensationalism, right? So, you know, you go back and you look at people like Lewis Barry Chafer, C.I. Schofield, G. Campbell Morgan, William R. Newell, J. Vernon McGee, Charles Ryrie, Bob Leitner, um, and uh, these guys all consistently taught the free grace position. And that's because, uh, and I hope you know this uh, by now, that dispensationalism... Uh, first and foremost, is a hermeneutic. Dispensationalism is not a system that divides history into categories or time periods, okay? Dispensationalism is is a hermeneutic. Charles Ryrie, who I knew and um, was a mentor of mine and had him come speak in different conferences with me, uh, he wrote the book on dispensationalism, literally, and he says the sine qua non, that without which it wouldn't be, the essence of dispensationalism, number one on that list, is a literal, a consistent literal grammatical historical hermeneutic. And if you consistently understand the Bible in its plain, normal, literal sense, you will inevitably arrive at the free grace position on the doctrine of salvation. Right? And so uh, I, that's the only reason I uh, mention that. Now, there are exceptions. There are people who claim to be dispensational and yet don't hold to the free grace position. Um Most of them uh, are not intellectually honest enough to admit it, uh, but one leading scholar, the guy that I was introduced to at the age of 22, John MacArthur, is. MacArthur recognizes the inconsistency in his theological positions, and he has labeled himself a leaky dispensationalist. That's his phrase for himself, because he knows that while he's dispensational in his eschatology, his Calvinistic view of the gospel is inconsistent with that. So, uh, I mean, I give him credit for being willing to stand alone. He's very rare. There are not very many non-free grace dispensationists out there, but he's one of them. I give him credit for going where he believes the Bible takes him. Uh, but I have a very serious disagreement with his conclusions. And as we're going to see in a moment, it stems from a failure to consistently handle the Scripture in its plain normal Uh, So in my book, Freely by His Grace, which I was really excited to to kind of head up this project, there are 16 chapters, 14 contributors, and it's basically the standard text for the free grace position from a traditional dispensational uh, perspective. And so chapter 15 was written by Dr. Tommy Ice, What is Traditional Dispensationalism? And then Tom Stiegel wrote in chapter 16, The Link Between Dispensationalism and Free Grace. Uh, again, we don't, we're not free grace because it's dispensational. Free grace because we believe that's the best understanding of Scripture. But it is helpful to know that dispensationalism, which is a biblical term uh, from Ephesians 3, oikonomos, dispensation, stewardship, economy, uh, is if you practice literal grammatical her- hermeneutics, you're going to arrive at that uh, position. So the message of free grace, what do we mean when we use this label? And, uh, you know, if you're in agreement with these principles I'm about to give you, then you are free grace. Whether you like to be or not, you are, right? It's like someone said, if you didn't bring a goat with you to church on Sunday, you're a dispensationalist, okay? You may not realize it, but you are, okay? Uh, Because times change, and the way God interacts with mankind changes. Not not different ways of salvation. That's another one of those straw men that people that don't know what dispensationalism is claim is what it teaches. I've never known a dispensationalist to teach different ways of salvation. Only one way of salvation, by grace through faith. Abraham believed God and was accredited, justified, uh, as righteous. Um, I've served in some of the top uh, dispensational groups in our day. A founding member of the Council on Dispensational Hermeneutics speak at the pre-trib uh, dispensational conference in Dallas. And nobody that I know has ever taught that you get saved one way in the Old Testament, one way in the New Testament. So that's not what dispensationalism is. Uh, Is dispensationalism is simply a recognition uh, that uh, that, through time God interacts with people based on the revelation he's given them at that point. And so uh, you may not have used the label or thought about the label, and maybe you are sitting here and you don't even like the label free grace. But if you hold these views, you're free grace. Salvation, point number one, is received by faith alone in Christ alone, who died in substitutionary sacrifice for our sins and rose again. Eternal salvation can never be attained by one's own efforts at moral improvement. Eternal salvation can never be attained through a promise or a pledge to do better. Eternal salvation can never be attained through making a commitment of some kind to God. I mentioned uh, Thursday night. This was one of the things the gospel is not. We have to be careful to use uh, words with biblical meaning. And uh, we have, I think, made a mistake in, especially in the last hundred years or so of Western American evangelicalism, and in sort of inserting this word commitment into the conversion uh, experience, um, I used, uh, I told the story uh, Thursday night that when I was in academics full time, there was a season there for a few years where I taught uh, at a school that was had a lot of older students. They were already serving in ministry. They had just, for whatever reason, their journey had not allowed them to finish their bachelor's. And so many of them were coming back in a degree completion program to finish their bachelor's so they could then go on to seminary because they wanted to get more education. And so these were great men of God and uh, all of them uh, you know, had a lot of wisdom. I was young, much younger then, so I was younger than most of my students. But uh, because many of them were pastoring, Mondays were always really fun because they would come into class on Mondays and they would have all the stories from their services uh, the previous day. And inevitably, uh, a student would say something like, oh, prof, you would have loved it yesterday at church. We had four people commit their lives to Christ. And I would always say the same thing. Man, that's great. Did any of them get saved? See, I'm challenging you right now, I can tell, because many of you think you get saved by committing something to the Lord never says that in Scripture. Find me one place where it says if you commit your life to Christ or commit your heart to Christ or commit yourself to Christ, your sins will be forgiven and you'll go to heaven. It's not a bilateral contract. It's not about the strength of our commitment. It's nothing in my hand I bring simply to the cross I claim. If I could commit my way into heaven, Jesus didn't have to go to the cross. Uh, So that's not just a logical argument. That's a biblical argument. There's no place in Scripture where it uses the phrase commitment as a means of receiving eternal life. Uh, eternal salvation can never be attained by forsaking or turning from sin. And if all I had to do is do a U-turn to be saved, well, there would probably be people who have the willpower, the self-will, the umption enough to, to pull themselves up by their bootstraps and turn their life around. You know? well, what about all those people that you know read a Dr. Phil book or appeared on the Oprah Winfrey show and somehow realized, man, my life's a mess, <laughs> I think I'll turn it around. And so they quit cold turkey. They stop doing drugs. They stop drinking. They stop sinning. They stop doing whatever it is that their problem is, and, and they've become a pretty moral person. Is that person going to heaven because they've suddenly cleaned themselves up? Of course not. We can't get to heaven by turning around and changing our life and stopping our sins. Uh, eternal salvation can never be attained through a willingness to stop sinning or improve one's behavior. Some people say, well, you can't really ever stop sinning, but you could certainly be willing to. Wow, if that's the standard, man, I, I don't know how anyone can go to heaven. And furthermore, I don't know how anyone can know they're going to heaven. Have I really been willing enough? You know, look, let's be honest with ourselves. And I'm going to assume, though I don't know you, that the majority of you, if not all of you, are believers. Okay? If we had time to share your testimony in here, we might... Have a better indication, but let's just say, for the sake of argument, that everyone in this room is a believer. I'll be honest; this is the audience participation moment of the day. Uh, how many of you ever sin? Raise your hand. Okay, almost all of you. That's good. And I hope Ben was able to get a quick list of names. You got a bunch of sinners in your school. Yeah, I'd watch out for them. These sinners—they're not very. Of course, we know we sin, right? You see my point. Of course, we know we sin. And by the way, why do we sin? Because it feels good. I mean, if sin was painful on the front end, nobody would do it. Right? It's the pleasures of sin, for a moment, that lead us to do it. right? So if, if we have to be willing to stop sinning, that's going to be a tall order. Because, let's be honest, we like sinning. If we didn't like sinning, we wouldn't do it. Right? Like, I don't really like exercising, as you can probably tell. So I don't do it, right? I like eating ice cream, so I do it, right? So we sin because we like it. (laughs) Amen, good. There's a believer. Clearly not a Seahawks fan.
1: Oh, but was that you, Mark?
0: Yeah, it might have been. Oh, man. We were out sightseeing last week, and Mark stopped and got the biggest ice cream cone I had ever seen. I was embarrassed for him. I just prayed a quick prayer on your behalf, Mark. Lord, forgive him. He knows not what he's doing. Um, <laughs> eternal salvation can never be attained through any effort that relegates salvation to some type of a two-way contract between God and man. Again, it's not a bilateral contract. It's not a quid pro quo. It's not a if I do it, then you do it. Yeah? What do we do with the Romans ten nine if you confess? Your mm-hmm. Yeah, let me answer that. That will be my first question to answer when we're, we're, we're done with this. Um, and, uh, but that's a great question. And there are others, too, that some of you might have might pop into your mind, passages that at face value seem to put a condition on uh, eternal life. Um, so good question. Don't let me forget. Uh, when it comes to eternal salvation, Jesus paid it all, plain and simple. We receive the free gift of eternal salvation, fully paid for by the blood of Christ, by trusting him and him alone as the only one who can forgive our sin and save us, from sin's penalty, namely, eternity in hell. All who are born of the Spirit through faith in Christ have the assurance of salvation and are eternally secure. So those are my bullet points. If you go to the Not by Works Ministry website and you look on What We Believe, you'll see that's our our statements under the doctrine of salvation. Very similar to other uh, viewpoints uh, as well uh, from those that are free grace uh, ministries. Uh, So here's some misconceptions, though. Some people hear the phrase, free grace and have no awareness that it comes straight from the Bible, as we saw earlier, and so they hastily, without examining it, jump to conclusions and develop misconceptions about free grace, and I just want to address a couple of these quickly. Sometimes you'll hear people say free grace is a license to sin, and this is probably the most common misconception. Not only does the Bible specifically address this false notion, but it's also illogical on its face. In 32 years of ministry, I've never met a single person who made the argument Since I'm saved by grace, I think I'll go out and commit a bunch of sins. (laughs) Nobody thinks that way. That'd be like saying, because there are life preservers on the ship, I think I'll jump off. Or because there's a fire extinguisher on the wall, I think I'll start a fire. Nobody thinks that way. It's a completely illogical argument. It sounds good. I mean, it sounds kind of heady. Oh, if you emphasize free grace, it's just going to lead to more sin. Uh, Quite the contrary, by the way, I've met hundreds of people who are motivated by God's amazing free grace to live a godly life, right? So uh, that's an illogical argument, but Paul addresses it uh, in Romans 6. He's, ha- after saying where sin abounds, grace abounds all the more. In other words, you can't out God's grace, right? By its nature, it's unmerited favor. So the more unmerited it is, the more powerful it becomes. So the reason there's no such thing as cheap grace, right? Which is more valuable, grace for the mass murderer or grace for the person who told a lie? I mean, grace is grace, I get that, but wow, it seems like the ground is level at the foot of the cross, doesn't it? So it's not cheap, there's no such thing as cheap grace. But uh, Paul says, well, since where sin abounds, grace abounds all the more. Shall we continue in sin so that grace may abound? And of course he says, meganoita, certainly not. Anytime you see that phrase meganoita in Greek, sometimes translated God forbid or may it never be or certainly not here in the New King James, Paul is always denying a correct, pre- a false conclusion from a correct premise. Always, every time. In other words, people have taken a premise that is true and twisted it into something that's not true. The premise is you cannot out-sin God. Where sin abounds, grace abounds all the more. But that does not mean then that you should go out and keep on sinning. Um, uh, so the notion that somehow God's grace promotes sin is simply uh, absurd. Uh, in fact, Titus 2 says, The grace of God that brings salvation has appeared to all men, teaching us to live godly lives. It's just the opposite. Grace doesn't motivate us to sin. Grace teaches us to live, you know, to deny ungodliness, to deny worldly lust, to, to live soberly and righteously in this present age. Another misconception is that free grace is easy believism. This notion that uh, that MacArthur uh, wrote a whole book about called hard to believe. I quoted from that book Thursday night. But in in the minds of Calvinists it is not easy to get saved. Man, you got to count the cost. You got to Bring something to the table. You better be willing to forsake all unrighteousness, make a promise or a pledge to God. Some Calvinists even list a set of vows that you should say to God. If, he, if you're going to get into heaven, I send a pledge to you, God, that I will stop doing this and start doing that. James Montgomery Boyce actually has that, uh, that uh, covenant that you say before God because they see it as a two-way contract. And so, of course, they think anyone that teaches you, you just got to trust in Jesus Christ and Him alone as the only one who can save you. Oh, that's too easy. That's too easy. And that's what they mean with this pejorative label, easy believism. But I'm here to tell you that though comprehending the gospel is simple, so simple a child can understand it. I mean, you can state the gospel in 10 words or less. Christ died for our sins and rose from the dead. Period. That's it. And uh, children understand that. That's why Jesus said, suffer the little children to come unto me. There's a difference between understanding it and being willing to trust only in Jesus for your salvation. And Satan is blinding men's hearts to the gospel, and so people have a hard time doing that. So if by, you know, easy believism, you you mean it's it's hard for some people to place their faith solely in Jesus Christ and Him alone. Yeah, I'm with you on that. I wrote a book, I don't think he has it up here, but my latest book is called Top Ten Reasons Some People Go to Hell and The One Reason No One Ever Has To. And in it I give it's more of an apologetic, I give ten common things that keep people from believing the gospel. Things like pride and heartache and tragedy and crisis and uh, other issues. So uh, I get that it's hard for some people to believe the gospel, but it's not hard to be saved. It's easy to be saved. Jesus opened the door for us. Uh, some people say, oh, free grace is cheap grace. I've already talked about that. It's not cheap. By definition, grace is unmerited favor. The more unmerited it is, the more powerful it becomes, right? If you're debt, to use a monetary example, If you're a million dollars in debt and someone comes along and waves a magic wand and says, debt forgiven, you're square. Is that more powerful than if my son who borrowed $20 from me doesn't pay it back after a week and I say, look, I'm going to just waive the debt. Forget it. You don't have to pay it back. Which one's more powerful? Which one's more valuable from a human perspective? So uh, grace is not cheap. Well, let me just close by mentioning a couple of things about the free grace movement um, the Grace Evangelical Society is basically all, kind of recognized as the leading so-called free grace uh, movement. Um, and uh, but they have, in the last 15 years or so, really ventured down into some pathways that myself and many others are not uh, comfortable with. and I'll mention those in a second. But consequently, a group of men, myself included, started the Free Grace Alliance. And uh, it wasn't, strictly speaking, intended to uh, be be opposed to GES. In fact, early on, many of us were members of both organizations. But we wanted to create an alternative for those who felt like some of the views among GES leaders uh, were uncomfortable. We wanted to give a place for them to land. Very quickly after FGA started, GES continued to further drift away from Uh, orthodoxy in my view, and so uh, we uh, kind of completely separated. I, As the executive director, I made a rule that if you're on the board, you couldn't attend the GES conference, you couldn't speak at the GES conferences because we wanted to make a clear distinction uh, between uh, the two. Some of the mistakes that GES, and by the way, FGA later, uh, it just seemed like the the good old boy network was so closely tied to GES because so many of us had come out of that that many of them really couldn't break, make that break. And so after several years, myself and three other board members resigned and just said, look, if you're can, if you're really intent on connecting GES and FGA at the hip, then we're not going to stop you, but we're not going to do it. So I've disassociated with both groups because of some of these mistakes. These are some free grace mistakes that I have come across that I mentioned was always having to give caveats to. First of all, there's a failure to distinguish between the Gospels and the Epistles. Same mistake that many Bible teachers make. I believe it's one of uh, MacArthur's uh, hermeneutical fallacies. It's looking at the Gospels and reading church-age truth into it Mm -hmm. and not understanding the the national promises to Israel and the original context, the distinction between discipleship and salvation, and and those types of things. Secondly, a failure to understand the progress of Revelation is kind of related, but that is that later Revelation can never change the meaning of previous Revelation that God revealed himself over a period of 1,500 years through the pen of 40 different human authors in three different languages. And as we read his, which we now have contained in the sum total of Scripture, the Bible, but over time, uh, you know, people were responsible for the information they had at that time. It's the reason replacement theology falls apart, because you can't have David receive a promise a 1,000 years before Christ that he's going to have a kingdom and a throne and a temple and what God really meant, which we don't find out for another thousand years, is that it's going to be a spiritual kingdom reigning in your heart. You're not going to have a brick and mortar kingdom. That's unfair to David. It's unfair to anyone who read that passage a thousand years before Christ. If, if we have to wait potentially a thousand years before we get the real meaning of something, how can anybody who received the revelation have that meaning? It's impossible to understand it. But I believe we can understand it in its literal grammatical historical context. A failure to properly synthesize scripture with scripture. That's just cross-referencing. It's it's what we do when we theologize and see what the Bible says as a whole. Uh, we've seen some mistakes, um, such as the cro- crossless o- cross gospel, or what I call the promise-only gospel. In the revised edition of Getting the Gospel Wrong, which uh, Ben showed a moment ago, I have a whole chapter dealing with GES, Zane Hodges, Bob Wilkin, and uh, others who who teach that you don't have to know that Jesus died and rose again for your sins to be saved. You don't have to know that. Um, I was actually at a conference in San Diego years ago where Bob Wilkin was speaking. Uh, it was an ETS conference, actually, and I was sitting right there on the front row and first one to raise my hand during the Q&A, and, I, and he was preaching on this issue, and I said, I just want to make sure I'm understanding you. Are you saying that a person could get saved today die and go to heaven, meet Jesus face to face and find out then for the first time that he died for their sins and rose from the dead. He said, absolutely, you don't have to know that information now. Well, that's part and parcel of the gospel. So you can see why you know, many people are not comfortable with Uh, G-E-S. Kingdom exclusion. They believe that really bad Christians get banished to Gehenna for a thousand years where they're tormented, weeping, and gnashing their teeth as a punishment for being a bad Christian. But then at the end, never fear, you do get out and get to go to heaven. Basically Christian purgatory. Similarly, punishment at the Bema. The Bema judgment, they say, is not simply for rewards, but it's for spankings. If you're a really bad Christian, you (laughs) might be punished at the Bema, which, you know, what kind of a blessed hope Would that be? You know, the Bible talks about the rapture, meeting the Lord face to face as a blessed hope, comfort one another with these words. How comforting is it if the first thing Jesus does when he sees us is put us over his knee and then give us some kind of punishment? It doesn't doesn't make sense, and the Bible doesn't teach that. I'm obviously not able to give a full critique of each of these views, so don't take my word for it. Study them for yourselves and see what the Word of God says. They also believe that believers can be under the wrath of God. I reject that notion. I think we are not under the wrath of God once we become a child of God. And then uh, they believe Christ's deity some of them is not essential to the gospel. You don't have to know he's the son of God. They also vary all over the map in their eschatology. I've been to one uh, FGA conference where they had an amillennial charismatic speak and again the guy might know the Lord, be a great guy and, and love the Lord Jesus and love his word but It's pretty far afield from traditional dispensational free grace viewpoint. And then uh, doctrinal compromise. They tend to make everything about anti-Calvinism. And as long as you are anti-Calvinism, they don't care whatever else you believe. You're in our camp. And, you know, I I don't agree with Calvinism either, but I don't think it's all the end-all-be-all of theology. I think uh, there are other issues that are important as well. So there you have it. Uh, I, I, uh, you know wanted to kind of give you that summary hopefully that helps clarify the distinction between what the Bible says about free grace and what the movement has become and so now your question about Romans 10 9 and 10 um, question is I'll just repeat it for the sake of time does Romans 10 9 and 10 make confession a requirement for being saved yeah so no it doesn't um uh, Romans 10 is in the midst of a section of Romans chapters 9 through 11 that deal with Israel. And in the context, Paul is talking there about how Israel will not be delivered into her kingdom as promised in the Old Testament because they rejected the gospel. And uh, someday, he goes on to say, in chap- the latter part of chapter 10 and into chapter 11, that the nation of Israel will be delivered into the kingdom when the deliverer comes out of Zion. He quotes several Old Testament passages. But in Romans ten nine he says that before Israel can call on the name of the Lord nationally and be delivered into the kingdom, they must first individually believe the gospel because how can they call on him in whom they have not believed? So with the heart, man believes and is declared personally righteous, but with the mouth, the nation of Israel will confess, call on the name of the Lord and be delivered into the kingdom. And if you read the context closely, that's exactly what's going on. He actually quotes Joel 2, which is a second coming passage, and um, it's the same thing Jesus said in Matthew 23 uh, when he said to the first century Jewish leaders, you will not see me again until you cry out, blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. First Advent, they cried, crucify him, crucify him. Next time around, they're going to cry, blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord, in fulfillment of uh, Psalm 118, the Messianic Psalm. So that's what Paul was talking about. He was asking, answering the question, is Israel forgotten, forsaken? Has God abandoned them? No, no. They, 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 they're going to get their kingdom. But before they can nationally be delivered into the kingdom, each Jew, like every other human being on in the human race, has to believe the gospel. So, yes, there is one condition. Let's be clear, that's mentioned over 160 times in the New Testament: faith. So you have to receive a gift, right? There's also a condition for receiving a gift. You have to take it. You can't. A forced gift is no gift at all. Forced love is no love at all. So. You know the gift is universally offered, but it's got to be freely offered and freely received. So if Ben had said, "I don't want that gift," that's not on me. (laughs) He doesn't have to take it. I'm offering it. He doesn't have to take it. But there is one condition for anyone to go to heaven, and that is faith alone in Christ alone. So, anybody else uh, have a question or comment? When you mentioned Calvin. This is a two-fold question okay um, the, the one is how do you deal with uh, disobedient believers because a lot of times this is where um, in practical pastoral ministry where it comes up is you know somebody makes a profession of faith in Christ there's absolutely no um, evidence that I, that we can see in fact that can, you know they're continuing on um, obviously the, those that don't embrace free grace would say well they're not you know, it's a, a profession, but not a possession. So interact with that. Okay. And the second is <clears throat> when Free Grace says they're anti-Calvinism, what are they actually? It's, it's uh, you know, in soteriology, the um, tool the of acrostic. What, what, are, what are we saying? Okay. So great question. Um, so for the second question, and I will give you a quick answer, in a minute, but I, I have a video series on our website called Reformed Theology, the Gospel, and the Nature of Saving Faith, which the first part of that, I, I, I really do something that I think is very helpful, in, and that is I have several slides in a chart form that I show what bothers each side. In other words, what is it about the free grace folks that bothers Calvinism? And, and I got this directly from them. And then what is it about Calvinism that bothers us? So it sort of helps frame the debate. And then I get into sort of answering some of those objections and at least my two cents worth. But I think that's a good, fair, and balanced, you know, because, again, Calvinists are not, you know, terrible, hypocritical, you know, heretics or something. They, they love Jesus. They have a system. They have the Bible. And, and this is what they critique, how they critique us. But to, as to your question about sin in the life of a believer, in Freely by His Grace, we have a whole chapter that deals with sin in the life of a believer. And, but the short answer is, if you've got a person standing before you who is living in abject carnality, but claims to be a Christian, every single time, 100% of the time, one of two things is true, every time. He's either a believer or not a believer. I mean, that, that's it. We cannot determine with absolute certainty whether someone's a believer or not based on their behavior, because you're not saved by works. And as I said, any sin that an unbeliever can commit, a believer might also commit. Now, in the real practical realm, obviously, if you're dealing with that situation, the first thing you're going to do is say, man, this guy might not be a believer. And he might not be. And so you're going to want to hear his testimony. And if this person says, well, I've always been a Christian, or I was baptized, or I was raised in a Christian home, or gives any of those sort of non-answer answers, then you probably know you're dealing with a justification issue and you want to share the gospel. But it is possible for someone to be a believer who's drifted so far from the Lord, they've quenched the Spirit, they've grieved the Spirit, they've turned a hard heart to the Spirit, and their life looks like an unbeliever. And in that case, you're dealing with a sanctification issue and you want to pray The Holy Spirit will convict them. You want to talk to them about the devastating consequences of sin and and how they need to recognize who they are in Christ and live like a child of the King. And so you come at it from a different angle. So I, unlike maybe some people in the free grace movement, I would never emphasize the fact that, you know, every person who claims to be a believer and is living in sin is a believer. They might not be. In fact, I would even say they probably aren't, you know. But it is possible and so you want, to, you want to talk them through that and, and hear that. But either way, I believe the free grace position does a better job dealing with sin because Calvinists, all they've got is you're not a believer. So you've got to get saved again. Uh, read my article called uh, Dan's Dilemma. Um, and it's a real story, I've changed the name, but of someone who was trapped in that cycle. And every time they kept living in sin and falling prey to the same old habits, they were just, oh, well, you got to get saved. You didn't really mean business. It didn't take. you got to really mean business this time. Your commitment wasn't strong enough, so you got to try again. And so there's really no answer for Calvinists except if you're living in prolonged sin, well, you're not saved. And I'm saying they might not be saved. And that's a very legitimate concern. But let's listen by their testimony will know, and then uh, if we feel like they in fact are a believer based on their testimony, then you can say, well, you're sure not acting like one. <laughs> See, that it's, it's possible for Christians to not be healthy spiritually. So I would, I would soften it a little bit. I wouldn't take as hard line a stand as really either extreme. I'm not going to say they're guaranteed not saved. I'm not going to say they're guaranteed they are saved. But I think uh, theologically we have to allow For the fact that a person who's truly saved might not be living like it. Does that help? Okay. So, in other words, you're saying either they have misunderstood the gospel or they've misunderstood sanctification. And you are trying to discern who's speaking with them and giving the scriptures where they are speaking. Yeah. Exactly. And I know we're out of time, but if I can give one quick illustration. Yeah, so the comment for the tape here was that either they're misunderstanding the gospel or they're misunderstanding sanctification. Yeah, I think one of those two things is true. And you don't want to be guilty of sharing the gospel with a saved person. That's not helping anybody. But at the same time, you don't want to be guilty of trying to help a person who's an unbeliever grow in their sanctification because they need to be saved. They need to be born again. But um, let's just let me give a hypothetical. I think I've shown the biblical uh, evidence, but let me just walk you through a hypothetical. Let's say you're a 16-year-old kid, unsaved, never been grazed in a Christian family, just picture the worst environment, broken home, across the other side of the tracks, raised by an uncle who's on drugs and abusive, and just never even darkened the doors of the church, never even seen a Bible. But one day, some well-intentioned, believing young people in his high school invites him to a Christian rally at the football stadium. And this kid comes to get the free pizza. And let's assume for the sake of argument that it's a clear gospel that's being preached. He's sitting in the stands. The speaker preaches the gospel. And this young man is convicted of sin, righteousness, and judgment, his need for a Savior. And he trusts in Jesus Christ at that moment as the only one who can forgive his sin and give him life. He passes from death to life instantly. He's born again. But he goes home. Nobody gives him a Bible. Nobody invites him to church. He's back into that same old environment. He knows something's different, but he just isn't, nobody is feeding the discipleship process. So fast forward 10 years, now he's 26 years old, sitting in prison for multiple felonies. And the prison chaplain comes around and begins to talk to him and begins to share the gospel with him. And the young man goes, yeah, I've heard that. I believed that when I was 16 years old. Nine out of ten chaplains, if not more, are going to immediately say to that guy, oh, well, you obviously didn't really get saved. Mm. Look at your life. Look at your life. And that's the tragedy of not understanding the distinction between justification and sanctification. And now, there are a lot of false professors out there. Absolutely, the churches are filled with them. But what makes them not a Christian is not their lack of commitment or the fact that they've been sinning regularly for six months. You know That's the problem. Calvinism puts all these ambiguous criteria out there. And, you know How much good works do I have to do to prove I'm really saved? How many bad works can I do before I prove I'm not saved? You know It's just hard. So you know, if you don't understand that distinction, you're going to end up mishandling someone, and he's going to end up being a casualty of the faith. So, thank you guys very much. This was very uh, in, uh, enjoyable, and I'll stick around for a little bit here, but we're going to have to get on the road before too long. So, thanks, right, Ben. Well, JB, I want to mm-hmm. say thank you so much for, for coming. I won't uh, embarrass you by having, you, having them clap for you. That seems like a setup. <laughs> when I preach in chapel, they, they clap for me. At the end of every class, nobody claps for me. I don't understand that anyway. I think they were just clapping because you were done. <laughs> That's right. But, yeah. uh, but uh, can I have you uh, pray to, to, sure. to dismiss us? And then, of course, these guys are all going to go eat. So you bet. at least pray for their meal. Absolutely. We'll pray for the meal as well. Father, thank you for this uh, time together. Thank you for these men and women and uh, just for the desire to learn more about you and study you. Thank you for the faculty members and their uh, just sacrifice and, and, and devoting their lives to teaching uh, students. We thank you for this time together. I pray that, Lord, this uh, session would really prompt uh, everyone to dig deeper in the Word, really begin to study it, and really get to know and understand grace like never before. What an amazing, matchless grace we have all experienced. Father, bless the food that uh, these uh, students are about to partake, and uh, watch over us the rest of this day. In Jesus' name, amen. Amen. amen.